Chapter 8. White Mischief. Dr. Fauci's African Atrocities. They increased the number of diseases from two to nearly 30 that could be classified as AIDS, and after that they started a global testing program of vulnerable populations, which just coincidentally happened to be people not in a position to defend themselves easily. They started to find AIDS everywhere, including in Africa, but including in the United States, and wouldn't you know, one of the communities they found was the African-American community, and they tested a lot of women, and they found a lot of HIV-positive women, and they decided, well, let's go forward. Carrie Mullis, winner of the 1993 Nobel Prize for Chemistry. As Vera Sharav points out, racism is an abiding feature of medical authoritarianism and human experimentation. Molecular biologist Harvey Bialy, the editor of the Nature Biotechnology Journal, observed that the subtle backdrop of racial and sexual bigotry and bullying are the distinguishing attributes of AIDS research. The fearful fascination with the contagion was amplified by the official narrative that the disease originated in Africans doing weird things with monkeys and spread to the voodoo kingdom of Haiti, and that the sexual depravity of homosexuals drove the disease into the United States. Dr. Fauci's critic, Charles Ortleb, the editor of New York Native and author of a biography of the NIAID director, recalls that the theme of unwanted minorities spreading contagion was a standardized soliloquy of totalitarianism, most notoriously Hitler's stoking of public fears of tuberculosis to incite bigotry toward Jews. There was always this undertone of bigotry with AIDS. I don't think we can dismiss as coincidence that the population that they targeted for their toxic concoctions were gays, blacks, Hispanics, and Africans. And Dr. Fauci did not restrict his unethical experiments with AIDS drugs to American children. By June 2003, NIH and NIAID were running 10,906 clinical trials in 90 countries, and Dr. Fauci's pioneering AIDS branch, newly christened DAIDS, Division of Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, was testing new toxic antiviral concoctions in some 400 clinical trials in the United States and globally. Dr. Fauci's PIs targeted developing nations that lacked strong institutional structures for protecting impoverished citizens from the abusive practices of powerful pharmaceutical multinationals. According to Vera Sharav, Dr. Fauci had NIAID and its pharmaceutical company partners move his most controversial and risky studies offshore because they can do stuff that they could never get away with in the United States. Journalist Celia Farber concurs with Sharov's assessment. The racism is cloaked inside carefully crafted philanthropic manipulations such as access to drugs. It's never access to clean drinking water, education sanitation, nutrition. It's a very blighting message for the U.S. to constantly be browbeating Africans with our self-serving messaging that they are so sick 
and we have just the drugs to save their lives. When the opposite happens, it's swept away and hidden behind the false front of charity. I call it pharma colonialism. Africa has been a pharma colony for over a century. It is the venue of choice for companies seeking cooperative government officials, compliant populations, the lowest per patient enrollment costs, and lacks oversight by media and regulatory officials. Powerless, often illiterate, and if necessary, disposable quasi-volunteers allow pharma's PIs to paper over even catastrophic side effects and mistakes. In 2005, FDA officials learned that Dr. Fauci's DAIDS team had concealed scores of deaths and hundreds of injuries during HIV drug trials in Africa with another of his toxic chemotherapy vanity products, Nevirapin. Dr. Fauci's fingerprints were all over DAIDS's sketchy African experiments. In October 1988, his success at getting approval for AZT won him the equivalent of a billion-dollar lottery for a career technocrat, a mention during then-Vice President George H.W. Bush's presidential debate. You've probably never heard of him. He's a very fine researcher, top doctor at National Institute of Health, working hard, doing something, research on this disease of AIDS. The accolade gained him an even larger prize, access to and the trust of the new president. Two administrations later, Dr. Fauci warned President George W. Bush that HIV had gotten a toehold in Africa and was spreading like wildfire. He persuaded the president to demonstrate his bona fides as a compassionate conservative by redirecting the United States' foreign aid spending into the heroic enterprise of eliminating African AIDS. Accordingly, on January 19, 2002, President Bush announced a $15 billion package to combat AIDS, including a $500 million program to purchase millions of doses of nevirapin for distribution to African mothers and children. Dr. Fauci told the president that nevirapin would save millions of lives by preventing maternal transmission of HIV to unborn children. President Bush would later repeat this promise in his 2003 State of the Union address. Dr. Fauci's artful 1988 achievement of winning FDA approvals for AZT had launched the AIDS drug gold rush. Nevirapin was German pharmaceutical giant Beringer Ingelheim's beachhead in the race. Beringer had apparently lifted Nevirapin from the same toxic junk pile from which Burroughs Welcome had retrieved AZT. Canadian regulators rejected Nevirapin in 1996 and 1998 due to its potent toxicity and dubious efficacy. In December 2000, the Journal of the American Medical Association advised healthcare workers exposed to HIV to avoid prescribing nevirapin after the drug caused life-threatening liver toxicity in patients. A 2001 FDA review reported 20 serious adverse events, meaning death, hospitalization, 
life-threatening, or permanently disabling, resulting from brief prophylactic nevirapine exposure. Nevertheless, the German chemical company found a soft landing for its product at NIAID. Another drug too big to fail. Dr. Fauci apparently neglected to tell President Bush that nevirapine had never won FDA approval as a safe and effective drug. Dr. Fauci had to know all about the safety problems, but he must have either omitted or whitewashed them when he sold the program to Bush, says Celia Farber, who researched the episode extensively for her 2006 article in Harper's Magazine. NIAID's powerful apparatchik didn't fret that FDA had already refused nevirapine its official safety imprimatur. Dr. Fauci seemed confident that he eventually could get FDA to give him anything he wanted, Farber told me. In the early 1990s, Ugandan dictator Yoweri Museveni rolled out the red carpet for pharma. Uganda became one of many African nations seeking to cash in on the lucrative business of farming out their citizens for the booming clinical trial business. In 1997, Uganda granted Dr. Fauci's Johns Hopkins-based PI Brooks Jackson permission to run clinical trials on Nevirapin in Kampala. NIAID's AIDS division, DAIDS, was sole sponsor of a study to test the efficacy and safety of Nevirapin and AZT on preventing maternal transmission of HIV to newborns. DAIDS codenamed its Ugandan clinical trial HIV-NET-012. In 1999, Jackson and his team reported in the medical journal Lancet, Nevirapin lowered the risk of HIV-1 transmission during the first 14 to 16 weeks of life by nearly 50% in a breastfeeding population. This simple and inexpensive regimen could decrease mother-to-child HIV-1 transmission in less developed countries. Fauci acolytes hailed this success as NIAID's largest triumph against HIV to date. Congress voted a hefty hike to the NIH budget. But... The study's sunny conclusions concealed glaring methodological deficiencies. When they can get away with it, pharma researchers commonly employ the highly unethical gimmick of eliminating the placebo control group in order to mask injuries in the study group. The absence of an inert placebo comparator group allows Ph.D. grifters to dismiss all injuries and deaths in the study group as sad coincidences not associated with the drug they are testing. DAIDS's official Nevirapin clinical trial protocols required an inert placebo group, but once in Uganda, DAIDS's cowboy research team simply made the placebo group vanish. Instead of using a placebo, Jackson and his team ended up comparing the health outcomes in 626 pregnant women, half of whom took Dr. Fauci's 
horrendously dangerous chemotherapy concoction AZT, while the other half took nevirapine. Based on this study, Dr. Fauci was able to persuade the WHO in 2000 to grant emergency use authorization approval, EUA, to single-dose nevirapine for preventing mother-to-child transmission of HIV as its official recommendation. WHO was already a sock puppet for Big Pharma. Dr. Fauci used the stopgap WHO approval to persuade President Bush to purchase millions of dollars of nevirapine. Beringer began shipping cartons of its deadly and ineffective drug to clinics and maternity wards in 53 developing nations. The Beringer study enrolled 626 supposedly HIV-infected pregnant Ugandan women. Even at its best, HIV diagnosis in Africa is a casual affair, seldom verified by blood tests, and NIAID's trial team had a particularly cavalier approach to determining HIV infection. It is therefore unclear how many of the agency's recruits were actually HIV positive. From day one, the researchers trampled virtually all the study's safety efficacy protocols, including the most critical requirement in dosing safety studies, a genuine placebo control group. The gimmick of equalizing the carnage in both AZT and Neverapin study groups allowed the NIAID researchers to cobble together the sunny assessment of both drugs, which they published in The Lancet in summer of 1999. Using the deceptive code words that are de rigueur in NIAID's official reports of its clinical trials, the researchers reported that the two regimens were well tolerated. Their proof of this fraudulent assertion was that adverse events were similar in the two groups. Only the fine print of the Lancet study revealed that 38 babies had died, 16 in the Nevirapin group, and 22 in the AZT group. But as we shall see, that deceptive swindle was just the start of the mayhem. A NIAID project officer later complained to Farber that the Ugandan trials were out of control and researchers were trampling safety and regulatory standards. In July 2001, Beringer Ingelheim filed a supplemental application to the FDA to market Neverapin for preventing mother-to-child transmission, PMTCT, of HIV solely based upon NIAID's Uganda trials. However, Stories were already trickling back to Washington that Dr. Fauci's Kampala trials that underpinned the Lancet paper were a three-ring circus of flim-flam fraught with serious accuracy and ethical issues. It was at this time that the FDA, in keeping with standard procedure regarding planned inspections of a foreign site, announced that it was sending investigators to Uganda that declaration apparently irked Dr. Fauci and his NIAID team and terrified his Beringer partners. In January 2002, Beringer dispatched an audit team to Kampala. In exchange for FDA agreeing to delay its visit, 
Beringer promised to share its inspection report with the U.S. licensing agency. That report did little to assuage FDA's alarm. Beringer's own investigators described grisly mayhem in Kampala. The NIAID study was in shambles, including serious noncompliance with FDA regulations. In its efforts to win FDA approvals for the dangerous and ineffective concoction, DAID's team had violated virtually every good clinical practice including the unlawful failure to employ the standardized informed consent procedure of disclosing serious risks to study participants. Beringer's damning inspection report only heightened concern at FDA. In hopes of forestalling the FDA inspection, NIAID in February 2002 hired a private consultant group, Westet, to conduct an investigation and audit of the Kampala site. It's fair to assume that Dr. Fauci's crew was hoping for a whitewash from Westat. But Westat used seasoned auditors whose backgrounds included inspections on behalf of the FDA, and the Westat audit confirmed the long inventory of severe violations of good clinical practice, including, most disturbingly, the convenient loss of critical records. The missing records included a vital logbook that appeared to have documented the study's worst atrocities before its mysterious disappearance. NIAID's Uganda team told the Westat researchers that they had lost the critical log that, among other things, recorded all the adverse events and deaths. The remaining records didn't report which mothers received which drugs or even whether they survived the study. The auditors reported a scene of pure chaos. Drugs were given to the wrong babies, documents were altered, and there was infrequent follow-up, even though one-third of the mothers were marked abnormal in their charts at discharge. The infants who did receive follow-up care were in many cases small, and alarmingly underweight. It was thought to be likely that some, perhaps many, of these infants had serious health problems. When Westat chose a random sample of 43 of those infants to examine, all of them had adverse events 12 months after the study terminated. Only 11 of them were HIV positive. When Westat confronted Dr. Jackson's researchers with study discrepancies, they admitted that they routinely applied more lenient standards for their black Ugandan subjects than FDA rules required for U.S. safety studies. The PIs admitted to systematically downgrading standardized definitions of serious adverse events to adapt to local standards. Injuries that researchers would score as serious or deadly if they happened to white Americans, became minor injuries when black Africans were the victims. Under their relaxed rubric, clinical trials staff scored life-threatening injuries as not serious. When they reported them at all, NIAID classified mortalities among its African volunteers as serious adverse events rather than death. NIAID's Ugandan team had entirely neglected to report thousands of adverse events 
and at least 14 deaths. Dr. Fauci's PI, Dr. Brooks Jackson, acknowledged that he had avoided reporting thousands of AEs and SAEs, adverse and severe adverse events, by applying those diluted definitions of serious and of severity. Researchers specifically excluded from the reports all deaths that occurred more than a few months after the study ended. When Westat pushed for answers, the NIAID Hopkins local team pleaded that no one had trained them in good clinical practice and that they had never attempted a Phase three trial. Finally, the Westat auditors refused to sign off on Avirapin because they could find no valid data suggesting that this highly toxic drug prevented HIV transmission. After receiving Westat's audit report, panic-stricken NIAID and Beringer officials again feared FDA making its own planned site visit. But Dr. Fauci had already pushed his beleaguered sister agency past its high tolerance for bureaucratic humiliation. FDA demanded to see the Westat report. Dr. Jonathan Fishbein told me that when FDA regulators finally reviewed the Westat report, they read the riot act to NIAID and Beringer's officers. FDA instructed Beringer to withdraw its application for Nevirapin's approval or face the mortification of a public FDA rejection. In March 2002, Beringer Engelheim consequently pulled its supplemental FDA application for Nevirapin's approval, and the Johns Hopkins NIAID team closed the scandal-ridden Ugandan study site. The decision to shorten the study occurred at a tense meeting between the FDA and the NIAID. Everyone knew the enormous implications of the audit findings. FDA's refusal to rubber-stamp Nevirapin's approval meant the collapse of the Bush administration's most visible foreign policy program. Dr. Fauci had persuaded the president to make the abolishment of African AIDS his moonshot project, his career legacy, and Nevirapin was the foundation stone of that project. The severe embarrassment to the president and to the NIH would also engulf Uganda's Makerere University, Beringer, the investigators, and their employers, Johns Hopkins University and Family Health International, FHI, the organization responsible for monitoring the trial. It would antagonize the South African government, whose drug regulatory agency, the Medicines Control Council, MCC, permitted the distribution of Nevirapin under duress based solely on the fraudulent results of the Uganda study published in Lancet in 1999. Curiously, Dr. Fauci did not attend the meeting to take responsibility for his institute's leading role in the catastrophe. He dispatched his underlings to absorb the spanking. It was a great embarrassment to the Bush administration because that was their big initiative, recalls Farber. In any other circumstances, Nevirapin would have been DOA in FDA's licensing process. But Nevirapin was Tony Fauci's baby. He had staked his credibility with the president on the success of this trial.
Like AZT, Navirapin was therefore too big to fail. Such desperate circumstances summoned Teflon Tony to perform his greatest magic act, resurrect the dead. Tony Fauci knew that Navirapin had fundamental safety and efficacy deficits that went way beyond record-keeping, says Farber. Those problems were existential. The drug didn't work, and it killed both mothers and children. According to Farber, two inspections had now declared HIV-NET-012 to be a complete mess. Beringer's own and Westat's, which had been performed in conjunction with NIAID. But the ways in which the various players were tethered together made it impossible for NIAID to allow the study to die without embarrassing Dr. Fauci in his relationship with President Bush and without implicating NIAID in the Uganda scandal. NIAID sprang into cover-up mode. Dr. Fauci by now adept at manipulating both elected officials and a credulous press, had his PR team begin the resurrection project by refashioning the Uganda Charnel House scandal as a simple misunderstanding based on minor clerical errors. Blithely ignoring FDA's dire safety and efficacy signals and Beringer's demeaning withdrawal, NIAID issued a press release characterizing its Ugandan atrocities as mere record-keeping glitches. NIAID's statement claimed that while certain aspects of the collection of the primary data may not conform to FDA regulatory requirements, no evidence has been found that the conclusions of HIV-NET-012 are invalid or that any trial participants were placed at an increased risk of harm. To the contrary, the communique assured the public NIAID's trial had proven Navirapin both safe and effective. Summoning his extensive web of loyal dependencies, Dr. Fauci lined up a host of organizations, including the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation, Johns Hopkins, Beringer Engelheim and others to issue statements and press releases supporting NIAID's official narrative. NIAID portrayed the devastating Beringer withdrawal as merely a temporary setback, which Dr. Fauci, in a perverse but inspired twist of Orwellian newspeak, recast as an admirable demonstration of corporate responsibility. In July 2002, DAIDS announced that it would reassess the Uganda-Navirapin study with its own in-house remonitoring protocol, a fancy construction for whitewash, managed by Fauci's top aides henchman, DAIDS director Edmund Tremont. However, in an uncharacteristic faux pas, Tremont included his hand-picked DAIDS in-house review team, which included the agency's medical officer, Dr. Betsy Smith, who was not down for the cover-up. During her document inspection, Dr. Smith took notice of the poor quality and the incompleteness of the safety data. Shoddy record-keeping at the site revealed that the study did not comply with good clinical practice GCP guidelines. GCP is a requirement 
for all NIH-funded clinical research and any studies conducted for the purpose of supporting the safety and effectiveness of investigational drugs. Dr. Smith's draft safety report raised all kinds of noisome alarms. She noted that medical records such as clinical notes, which are source documents needed to validate study data, were missing, incomplete, and often unsigned or undated. This made it difficult to validate the occurrence of adverse events. Poor quality clinical records were below expected standards of clinical research, especially for a study of such great importance. Smith and regulatory branch chief Mary Ann Luzar also uncovered serious health injuries in the chaotic Uganda safety records. Babies in the AZT arm were showing consistently elevated liver enzymes, injuries consistent with Neverapin's long history of provoking lethal liver failure. She found that the Uganda team had neglected to report numerous infant deaths and routinely failed to track patients who had abnormal lab values, clinical signs, and symptoms to determine how these problems resolved. Further complicating that problem, the study team did not interpret laboratory results using the standard toxicity grading scales that the protocol required, but had spitballed their assessment using less stringent grading scales and creating a team-defined reporting algorithm for study with the goal to report fewer AEs and SAEs, adverse and serious adverse events. This was the delicate lingua franca that bureaucrats employ to accuse one another of fraud. Dr. Jackson had not trained his study staff on how to report SAEs, and his team neither tracked nor reported AEs, including serious ones. Instead of treating these grave deficiencies with appropriate concern, FHI's research monitors, who had been visiting the site for years, made light of the problems. Their on-the-ground solution to the nevirapin toxicity problem in Africa was to simply not monitor for safety, says Farber. Dr. Smith realized the monumental implications of her findings, which jeopardized the mission-critical project to license nevirapin to prevent maternal-to-child transmission of HIV. Dr. Smith therefore trod delicately. She concluded her report by stating, safety reporting did not follow DAIDS reporting requirements during the conduct of HIV NET-012. Safety conclusions from this trial should be very conservative. Dr. Fauci had sold his Nevirapin enterprise as a heroic moment for American greatness, recalls Celia Farber. Dr. Fauci said he was going to save African pregnant women and their babies. It turns out that this is an extremely dangerous drug with no demonstrated ability to save a single life. This isn't rocket science. Dr. Fauci knew all about the safety problems, but for Fauci and his cult of HIV drug worship, no drug is ever unsafe. Farber researched the episode extensively for her 2006 article in Harper's Magazine, Out of Control, 
AIDS, and the corruption of medical science. Dr. Smith's conclusions in her safety report, if allowed to stand, would kill Navarapin's chances of winning FDA approval for preventing maternal-to-child transmission. Despite all these setbacks, NIAID's powerful apparatchik didn't seem to fret that FDA was now unlikely to grant Navarapin its official safety imprimatur. Dr. Fauci employed the same ploy that Bob Gallo used when he recruited Margaret Heckler as his useful idiot to convince the world that NIH's intrepid scientists had identified the viral culprit behind AIDS. By now, Dr. Fauci was acting on a much larger stage. On January 29, 2003, the new president took the podium at his State of the Union speech and announced Dr. Fauci's new program to the world, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR. On the continent of Africa, nearly 30 million people have the AIDS virus, yet across that continent, only 50,000 AIDS victims, only 50,000, are receiving the medicine they need. I asked the Congress to commit $15 billion over the next five years, including nearly $10 billion in new money, to turn the tide against AIDS in the most afflicted nations of Africa and the Caribbean. His power to deliver a $15 billion health program and to summon unprecedented accolades from a sitting president gave Dr. Fauci unchallengeable power over the entire U.S. health bureaucracy unmatched in American history. He now enjoyed consolidated power over HHS and all its subsidiaries. After Bush's State of the Union, all of HHS fell in line behind Dr. Fauci's project to rewrite history, recalls Farber. The political stakes were very high. To save the reputation of his boss and employer, and by extension, everyone else implicated in this scandal, Ed Tremont rose to the task. Tremont went to work by eliminating inconvenient facts recorded by Betsy Smith and top regulatory compliance officer in the NIH's AIDS division, Mary Ann Luzar, by reorganizing the disqualified Uganda data. When DAIDS released Tremont's edited version of the remonitoring report on March 30, 2003, Dr. Smith's safety review had vanished. In its place was a safety section Tremont later admitted having ghostwritten. Tremont had begun with a straightforward revision of the safety review committee's conclusion, altering it from unfavorable to favorable. Tremont's purged draft boldly concluded, single-dose nevirapin is a safe and effective drug for preventing mother-to-infant transmission of HIV. This has been proven by multiple studies, including the HIV-NET-012 study conducted in Uganda. Tremont began massaging data sets to conform the rest of the report to this adjusted outcome. Tremont dismissed concerns raised by Luzar about pediatric liver problems and forged in his own bleached conclusions that the drug was safe. In Dr. Fishbein's words, Tremont simply rewrote the safety section, minimizing concerns about the toxicities, deaths, and record-keeping problems 
that had been highlighted by his medical safety expert. Tremont's editing skills produced a document that laid the foundation in December 2002 for FDA's approval of the lethal concoction for global use on pregnant women. The Presidential Seal of Approval Then Teflon Tony played his trump card. Dr. Fauci's coup de grace was a White House announcement that Bush would anoint the scandal-ridden Neverapin project with a personal site visit. The presidential junket would serve as a kind of public purification ritual to purge away the scandal and anoint Neverapin with legitimacy. The special bravado that allowed Dr. Fauci to summon a president to a distant continent and to make Dr. Fauci's personal agenda the centerpiece of White House foreign policy was a demonstration of power that could only provoke the entire awestruck public health bureaucracy to stand at attention and salute. What FDA bureaucrat would now have the courage to taint this prestigious HHS triumph with awkward questions about safety and efficacy? Dr. Fauci wanted the HIV-NET site reopened for President Bush's visit, Dr. Fishbein told me. That visit was such an embarrassment to all of us who knew the truth, but everyone fell into line. The USAID's media even began to refer to Museveni suddenly as a benevolent dictator. Farber remarks, That presidential junket was so transparently phony, a shameless exercise in colonial public relations and lies. On July 11, 2003, President Bush toured the clinical trial site in Kampala, which DAIDS had hurriedly reopened and populated with temporary health workers for the occasion. Dr. Fishbein explained to me, NIAID officials rushed to reopen the site despite my concerns that it wasn't ready, but Tremont overruled me. He wanted the restriction lifted ASAP because, in his words, the site is now the best in Africa run by black Africans, and President Bush was scheduled to be there in four days. Said Farber, NIAID officials rushed to reopen the site to paper over the disgrace and to impress and deceive the president. She added, it was really straight up. Potemkin's Village, a vast PR campaign with nothing behind the Hollywood facade except death. Dead babies dead mothers, we will never know their names. Almost all of HHS was now behind Dr. Fauci's project to rewrite history. In July 2002, DAIDS announced that it would reassess the Uganda Nevirapin study. Presenting awards to one another is a knee-jerk strategy by which vaccine experts paper over malefactions and atrocities. It is therefore not surprising that to advance the cover-up and absolve the Uganda research team, Tremont recommended that Dr. Fauci get his putative NIH boss, Elias Zerhouni, to present Dr. Jackson and his Uganda project researchers who had supervised the African debacle with an NIH award. This strategy would co-opt the NIH director into the cover-up and fortify institutional resistance to a full-blown investigation. Tremont assigned the task to his flunky, DAIDS's Deputy Director John Kagan, 
but in a rare display of independent good judgment, Kagan protested that giving awards to the clowns who had killed all those Africans, probably with criminal negligence, was a bridge too far. We cannot lose sight of the fact that they screwed up big time. And you bailed their asses out, he advised Tremont by email. I'm all for forgiveness, etc. I'm not for punishing them. But it would be over the top to me to be proclaiming them as heroes. Something to think about before pushing this award thing. But the conspirators had a problem. NIH medical officers Betsy Smith and Mary Ann Luzar were not willing participants to the cover-up. To tie up the last loose ends, Kagan ordered NIAID's ethics officer, Dr. Jonathan Fishbein, to reprimand Luzar for insubordination. The admonishment would bring the agency's ethics division into the cover-up and create an insurance policy if Luzar blabbed to anyone about all those African kids with collapsed livers. An official reprimand from a supposedly independent ethics officer would allow NIAID to discredit Luzar as a disgruntled employee. But Dr. Fishbein's investigation convinced him that the whistleblower, Luzar, was a hero. He told Tremont that he could find no justification for Luzar's reprimand and advised him against issuing the official rebuke. They were out to get her because she refused to compromise her integrity, Dr. Fishbein told me. Faced with Dr. Fishbein's resistance, Tremont backed down. In Dr. Fishbein, Dr. Fauci's team had run up against a public health official naive enough or conscientious enough to say no. Meanwhile, Dr. Fishbein's investigation of Luzar gave him additional reasons to mistrust Kagan's judgment. Female employees reported to Dr. Fishbein that Kagan was sexually harassing them. Tremont may have felt that Dr. Fishbein was purposefully goading him when, instead of rebuking Luzar, Dr. Fishbein filed a sexual harassment complaint against Tremont's sidekick and enforcer. Kagan was Fauci's bagman, AP reporter John Solomon told me. He was a career Army guy from Fort Detrick or Walter Reed. Dr. Fishbein concurred in this assessment. He was a just-following-orders kind of guy, brought in to put a layer of insulation between Fauci and all the institutionalized mismanagement in his HIV clinical trials. Dr. Fishbein adds that the corruption that had begun with AZT then metastasized throughout the entire program. Dr. Fishbein adds, the sexual harassment issues aside, Kagan was a miserable manager. Beringer Ingelheim never resubmitted its application to the FDA for preventing maternal-to-child transmission of HIV. Nevertheless, WHO, which, as we shall soon see, was by then under the control of Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci, began shipping this lethal concoction to developing nations globally to use on their pregnant women. It's a mystery why Neverapin was ever developed, launched, or marketed to the developing world the way it was, says journalist Celia Farber, since it was rejected by every Western drug safety agency, every single time. Why was it then repurposed and shipped to non-Westerners? 
The double standard is quite stark. We need to start calling it what it is, says Dr. Fishbein. The tragic irony here is that the Kampala-Neverapin research was performed to a level of standards that would be insufficient for supporting the drug's approval for use in the United States. But Fauci fervently defended the study as adequate to justify giving Neverapin to black Africans. Frankly, it strikes me as racist. Reverend Jesse Jackson echoed Fishbein's sentiment. This was not a thoughtful and reasonable decision, but a crime against humanity. Research standards and drug quality that are unacceptable in the U.S. and other Western countries must never be pushed onto Africa. Profits to Die For The pharmaceutical and the medical cartel's historical preference was to test dangerous drugs and medical procedures on people of color. But, by the late 1990s, black Americans were increasingly suspicious of medical authorities. President Clinton's belated 1996 official apology to the victims of the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, 1935 through 1973, had reminded blacks of other historic atrocities, including the barbaric gynecological experiments on black women by Dr. J. Marion Sims, father of modern gynecology. In 1992, a Los Angeles Times expose revealed that the CDC had been conducting unlicensed experiments with the deadly flu vaccine on black children in Haiti and Cameroon, and on 1,500 black children in south-central Los Angeles beginning in 1986. Blacks were therefore understandably reluctant to sign up for clinical trials. Despite vigorous efforts by pharmaceutical companies and regulators to recruit blacks, fewer than 4% of clinical trial enrollees in America were black. Nevertheless, Dr. Fauci seemed to have a genius for finding blacks, both American and African, to participate in his HIV chemotherapy drug experiments. In 2003, an HIV-positive African-American mother in Memphis, Tennessee, died during one of Dr. Fauci's Neverapin drug trials. In April of that year, Joyce Ann Hafford, four months pregnant and already the mother of a gifted 13-year-old, was shocked to learn she had tested positive following a routine HIV test recommended by her pediatrician. Believing her diagnosis to be a death sentence, Hafford enrolled in DAIDS's clinical trial at the University of Tennessee in hopes of saving her soon-to-be-born son from getting AIDS. Dr. Fauci's local PI, Dr. Edwin Thorpe, planned to recruit 440 pregnant women to determine the treatment-limiting toxicities of four HIV drugs in pregnant women. It's an embarrassment to me, to my family, and particularly to my deceased aunt and godmother, that NIH's Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development was a collaborator in this fraud. Hafford was healthy and symptom-free. None of her subsequent tests ever showed any clinical markers for AIDS, and Dr. Thorpe never told Hafford 
that the HIV test measured only for the presence of antibodies and was not a reliable indicator of HIV infection. Furthermore, pregnancy frequently triggers false positive results on HIV antibody tests, and Dr. Thorpe tested Hefford only once. To make matters worse, her family later found out that Joyce never signed her consent form, suggesting that Dr. Thorpe never informed her of Nevirapin's risks. Hefford's health took a steep nosedive after her first dose of Nevirapin. It only took a few days before Hefford was showing undeniable signs of dwindling liver function. Instead of taking her off the drugs that he knew could be deadly, Dr. Thorpe prescribed cortisone cream for her skin rashes. Within weeks, Hefford was presenting with alarming signals of hepatic collapse. Forty-one days after starting the trial, she was dead from liver failure, the same injury about which both FDA and JAMA had issued clear warnings. On July 29th, doctors delivered her baby, Sterling, by C-section three days before Joyce died. When the shattered family gathered around her body, Dr. Thorpe and his team told them, to their bewilderment, that Joyce had died of rapidly progressed AIDS. They were lying. The year after her passing, Associated Press reporter John Solomon gave Joyce's family a trove of DAIDS reports he had obtained from a Freedom of Information Act request. In those internal memos, DAIDS officials openly acknowledged to one another that nevirapin caused Joyce Havard's liver to fail. Dr. Thorpe and his colleagues kept Sterling on AZT for three months. Fifteen months later, Sterling tested negative for HIV. Despite their repeated requests, Dr. Thorpe and his hospital refused to release Sterling's medical records to the Haffords. Sterling's family believes that NIAID withheld those records because they would prove that neither Joyce nor Sterling ever had HIV. All babies born to mothers with HIV test positive at birth, and almost all babies shed the maternal antibodies by 18 months. Celia Farber, who focused her Harper's expose on Joyce's death and the HIV NET cover-up, is still angry. Farber, who grew close to the Hafford family during the months she spent researching Nevarapin, blames Dr. Fauci directly. The death of Joyce Ann Hafford in Memphis was a methodical, calculated homicide of a black woman by Fauci's henchmen, Farber told me. They had to know they were killing her when they saw her go into jaundice, and they just watched her liver crash. They wouldn't let her off the Nevarapin. It seemed like very clear medical murder at Dr. Fauci's doorstep. I'm still trying to recover from it. At that time, Dr. Jonathan M. Fishbein, M.D., was DAID's first director of the Office for Policy and Clinical Research Operations. His job was to monitor and enforce compliance to federal research and ethical policy in DAIDS-sponsored studies. In the summer of 2003, he intervened in Hefford's case. According to Dr. Fishbein, DAID's medical staff always knew that Hefford died of nevirapin toxicity. Nevirapin's toxicity, Dr. Fishbein told me, 
particularly its association with liver failure, was well documented, and the PI certainly had that knowledge. That August, Dr. Fishbein sent a memo to Dr. Fauci's AIDS branch director, Ed Tremont, informing him that nevirapine caused Hafford's lethal liver failure. Tremont wrote back, Ouch, not much we can do about dumb docs. Tremont's glib riposte seems to have been like a subtle signal to Dr. Fishbein to get in line with NIAID's strategic cover-up. Dr. Fishbein told me that acknowledging Nevirapin's role in Hefford's death would have jeopardized Nevirapin's FDA approval. Despite Tremont's crass cipher, Dr. Fishbein's regulatory team nevertheless informed the FDA about Hefford's drug-related death. Hefford was not the only trial recruit to suffer. In the initial Phase I trial on 21 pregnant women, NIAID's investigators would later report that four of 22 infants died and 12 suffered serious adverse events. Furthermore, the studies suggested that nevirapine was ineffective. None of the women experienced reduction of viral loads. When Thorpe and his colleagues finally published the results of their nevirapine study in 2004, they acknowledged that the study was suspended because of greater-than-expected toxicity. Rooting Out Integrity in the Workplace Dr. Fishbein didn't last long in his official capacity as the DAIDS official in charge of enforcing compliance with clinical research and ethical policy. His lethal misstep was his decision to follow a trail of irregularities affecting a NIAID drug trial called Esprit, which tested interleukin-2, IL-2, a cancer chemotherapy and AIDS drug known by its brand name Proleukin. The Esprit study was investigating IL-2 clinical outcomes in individuals with asymptomatic HIV+. In December 2003, the Esprit medical officer alerted Dr. Fishbein to troubling side effects in the Proleukin trial, namely capillary leak and an unusual psychiatric side effect, suicidal ideation. The medical officer, Larry Fox, worried that NIAID was putting volunteers in danger by withholding the information about those hazards from the investigator brochure as the law required. This brochure is an FDA-mandated document containing updated information detailing, among other things, the side effects and risks of an investigational drug. It provides clinical trial investigators with safety information compiled across study sites to keep study subjects informed about emerging hazards. Furthermore, without an up-to-date document, NIAID had issued the last one in 2000. NIAID was not adequately warning potential clinical trial enrollees about these serious dangers. Recalls Dr. Fishbein, the drug had grave risks for suicidal ideation and capillary leaks. The study leadership was ignoring their legal duty to inform the study recruits and participants about these troubling signals. By this time, NIAID had invested some $36 million in Esprit and had thousands of subjects enrolled at 200 international locations 
over nearly four years. If these asymptomatic participants were to learn about the emerging risks, NIAID feared they would drop out. It would also be difficult to attract new volunteers. The failure to retain subjects or recruit additional volunteers would nullify the study, one of NIAID's most costly ever. Ironically, after eight years and 4,150 subjects, Esprit concluded Proleucan offered no benefits to clinical outcome in HIV-plus patients. It was now evident to key NIAID officials that Dr. Fishbein was becoming an all-around nuisance. He was professional, curious, incorruptible, and far too serious about performing his duties. His big problem, says Farber, is that he thought his job was legit. Dr. Fishbein's personal virtues were all fatal character flaws within the NIAID institutional culture. Dr. Fishbein's refusal to toe the line sent him stumbling into the terminal career cul-de-sac at NIAID. Dr. Fishbein explained further about the Proleucan trial. It was a serious violation of protocols, and the researchers were ignoring their legal duty to report the signal. They omitted and whitewashed all these safety problems. You can't just focus on efficacy and ignore safety. Dr. Fishbein told AP reporter John Solomon, the ones that were in the study and those that wanted to get in the study, neither were being informed. NIAID feared that if they understood the risks, they would drop out. Dr. Fishbein had entered a dangerous realm at NIAID. He was interfering with ongoing drug approvals. Tremont was angry that Dr. Fishbein was allowing concerns about patient safety to become an obstacle to the agency's central mission of getting new drugs through the approval process with positive reviews. Tremont warned Dr. Fishbein to slow down. You are moving too fast. You need to get to know how this place works, Tremont told him. We need to act more like a pharmaceutical company. We need to get patients and get studies done. In the course of his IL-2 investigation, Dr. Fishbein stumbled on another awkward fact. Anthony Fauci personally owned patents to IL-2 and stood to make millions in royalties if the treatment won FDA approval. Dr. Fishbein was shocked. Dr. Fauci had a personal financial interest in the drug being tested. He was listed as a co-owner on the patent for Proleucan and stood to earn royalties from it. According to little-known HHS rules at that time, NIH employees could collect unlimited royalty payments from drugs they worked on during their agency tenures. Dr. Fishbein found it stunning that Dr. Fauci stood to personally gain significant revenues, providing HHS green-lighted Proleucan. Contemporaneous records obtained by the AP found that some 51 NIH scientists were then involved in testing products for which they secretly receive royalties. Dr. Fauci and his trusty longtime sidekick, Dr. H. Clifford Lane, have received tens of thousands of dollars in royalties for an experimental AIDS treatment they invented, interleukin II. At the same time, 
Their office has spent millions in tax dollars to test the treatment on patients across the globe. The AP story expressed understandable indignation about the circumstances under which the government has licensed the commercial rights to IL-2 to Chiron Corp. Fauci's division subsequently has spent $36 million in taxpayer money testing the treatment on patients in one experiment alone. Known as the Esprit Experiment, it is one of the largest AIDS research projects in NIH history, testing IL-2 on patients at more than 200 sites in 18 countries over the last five years. On February 6, 2004, Dr. Fishbein wrote the Study Executive Committee requesting issuance of the long-overdue updated version of the investigator brochure within 60 days to include warnings of the newly discovered risks. Within days, Dr. Fishbein recalled, I wrote a letter to the executive committee telling them to update the brochure. From that point on, the floor came out below me. Even though his mandate was to enforce research policy, Dr. Fishbein had crossed the red line at NIAID. He was not just interfering with the drug approval process, he was meddling with research in which Fauci had a peculiar interest. Dr. Fishbein's questioning about Dr. Fauci's patents tripped NIH into DEFCON 1. All sorts of alarms went off, recalls Dr. Fishbein. I came into government very naive. At the very least, I assumed that since Dr. Fauci wanted me to make sure studies were properly done, safety came first and that the participants were protected, he laughed. I was wrong. He recounts that he had met Dr. Fauci only once at the interview when Dr. Fauci hired him as NIAID's chief ethical and regulatory compliance officer. Dr. Fishbein recalls Dr. Fauci's earnestness. This is an important job, he said. If you come across any problems in the agency, I want to hear about them personally. I want you to come directly to me. Dr. Fauci told Dr. Fishbein that his door would always be open. But when Dr. Fishbein asked to meet with him about the IL-2 trials, Dr. Fauci went dark and Dr. Fishbein felt the institution turning against him. His guardians said he'd get back to me, recalls Fishbein. He didn't. He adds, he basically ran away. In the course of his subsequent grievance procedures and litigation over his firing, Dr. Fishbein obtained emails and other documents that chronicled what happened behind the scenes. Dr. Fauci's principal strategy in discussions with his upper-level management was how to sack Dr. Fishbein while keeping NIAID's director out of the splatter zone when things exploded. On February 24, 2004, Dr. Fauci met with Kagan and Tremont to plan strategies for ridding himself of Dr. Fishbein. The men hatched a plan by which Kagan and Tremont would orchestrate Dr. Fishbein's dismissal while making Dr. Fauci's fingerprints undetectable. The challenge was daunting. All the players knew that Dr. Fauci was the only one with legal authority to fire Dr. Fishbein. NIAID human resources officers originally told Dr. Fishbein that Dr. Fauci had authorized his firing. 
Dr. Fauci later protested to various investigators from NIH and the U.S. Congress that he had not ordered the firing. The NIH also denied that Dr. Fauci had ordered the firing. Dr. Fishbein calls this statement a lie. I was a Title 42 special expert, paid outside the agency budget. Dr. Fauci was the only NIAID officer with authority to fire me. Dr. Fishbein's reputation, his integrity, and his sterling work record presented additional obstacles. In November 2003, three months before his dismissal, Dr. Fauci presented Dr. Fishbein with a commendation for exceptional work at NIAID. Three months later, on February 9, 2004, Dr. Tremont also recognized Dr. Fishbein's outstanding job performance by recommending him to receive a $2,500 Service Recognition Award. Five days later, on February 13, 2004, Kagan blocked the processing of the award and canceled the $2,500 merit prize. DAIDS officials followed these actions with an exchange of frantic emails discussing how to axe Dr. Fishbein without implicating Fauci. In a February 23, 2004 note to Kagan, Tremont said, John, let's start working on this. Tony, Fauci, will not want anything to come back on us, so we are going to have to have ironclad documentation, no sense of harassment or unfairness, and, like other personnel actions, this is going to take some work. In Clausewitzian style, we must overwhelm with force. We will prepare our paperwork, then go from there. Several of Dr. Fauci's other trusted subordinates joined the email chain with recommendations for how to blow up Dr. Fishbein's career while keeping Dr. Fauci's hands clean. Said Farber, Jonathan Fishbein was tarred and feathered for pointing out that the NIH flagship study on Navirapin was a complete disaster. Fishbein's failure to fall into line, his failure to understand that Navirapin was too important to fail, meant that the AIDS bureaucracy's neutralizing antibodies had to be activated to destroy him. Between February 14th through 18th, after Tremont notified Dr. Fishbein that he was now reporting to Kagan, the same man whom he had recently cited for disciplinary action, Dr. Fishbein exchanged emails with Tremont, then traveling in Thailand, requesting an explanation for this odd demotion that had him working for a lower-level employee who was a key target of his misconduct investigation. An elusive Tremont refused to explain the decision and answered with a vague remonstration reminiscent of Dr. Fauci's signature obfuscating gobbledygook. It has not been lost on me that the most complaints about Kagan I heard from our constituents when I arrived revolved around complaints filed by Dr. Fishbein's branch, and since you have arrived, I have not heard a single complaint. And when I have inquired about that, the answer has been the charge brought by you. On February 25, 2004, Kagan canned Dr. Fishbein. Kagan explained to Dr. Fishbein that he had failed in every aspect of his job 
and that his bosses saw no chance for improvement. Kagan advised Dr. Fishbein to leave DAIDS immediately. Dr. Fishbein opted to stay and fight his dismissal. Dr. Fishbein first wrote to Tremont and Dr. Fauci requesting a meeting. He never received a reply. He next appealed to Dr. Fauci's ostensible boss, NIH Director Elias Zerhouni, who likewise refused to meet with him. NIH banned all employees from speaking about or to Dr. Fishbein. Everyone was terrified of Fauci, says Dr. Fishbein. He runs the agency like a vindictive dictator. Everyone is frightened of him. Everyone knows that you never cross Fauci. In Farber's words, Fishbein became a ghost. Nobody addressed him in the corridors, in the elevators, in the cafeteria. There was an active campaign to humiliate me, he recalls. It was as if I had AIDS in the early days. I was like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. Nobody would come near me. On February 26, 2004, Dr. Fishbein met with NIH's Office of Management Assessment, OMA, to complain about the actions against him. OMA also declined to investigate. On March 1st, 2004, Dr. Fishbein brought his charges to the HHS Inspector General. The IG similarly refused to lift the carpet at NIH. Later that month, in desperation, Dr. Fishbein moved for whistleblower protection and sought a congressional investigation of the wide-ranging corruption at NIAID. On Capitol Hill, he at last found sympathetic ears. Dr. Fishbein told investigators for United States Senator Charles E. Grassley, Republican, Iowa, and Senator Max Baucus, Democrat, Montana, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee and ranking minority member, respectively, that his sacking was retribution for his reports of wrongdoing in the Neverapin and Proleucan trials. Both senators began clamoring for HHS to investigate Dr. Fauci's corruption charges against NIAID and to answer the troubling questions Dr. Fishbein had raised about the homicidal studies in Tennessee and Uganda and sexual harassment and mismanagement in NIAID's home office. In a series of stern letters to NIH Director Zerhouni and his boss, HHS Secretary Michael Levitt, Senators Arlen Specter and Herb Cole joined Grassley and Baucus in rebuking NIH for inaction on Dr. Fishbein's complaints. Maryland Congresspersons Representatives Ben Cardin, Barbara Mikulski, and Steny Hoyer signed a similar letter. It's illustrative of Dr. Fauci's overwhelming power that he and his bosses decided to ignore and defy these remonstrances. After all, these three representatives were the royalty of NIH's home state delegation. In May 2004, under pressure from lawmakers, NIH agreed to commission an Institute of Medicine, IOM, investigation of HIV NET-012. The Institute of Medicine, a branch of the National Academies of Sciences, 
is ostensibly Congress's independent and trustworthy advisor on scientific issues. IOM regularly assembles panels of top scientists to oversee and review agency science. The presumption is that while regulated industries easily capture and compromise federal agencies, the Institute of Medicine is incorruptible. IOM members do not work for either industry or the government. Congress expects to get the straight poop from IOM. However, by that time, Dr. Fauci had already figured out how to control the IOM with invisible strings. The Capitol Hill lawmakers never realized that Dr. Fauci's PIs dominated the IOM panel that assembled to investigate his wrongdoing. Six of its nine members were NIAID grant recipients, then conducting their own trials for Dr. Fauci, with annual grants ranging from $120,000 to $2 million. The IOM study on Dr. Fishbein's charges was predictably, therefore, yet another whitewash. The IOM panel strategically adopted an extremely narrow scope of investigation that did not include NIAID's outrageous misconduct in Uganda or Tennessee. On April 7, 2004, the IOM panel reported its finding that the HIV-NET-012 data should be considered valid. That same day, Dr. Fishbein received a letter of termination from Tremont. Dr. Fishbein sought and received an automatic postponement of his sacking as he argued his whistleblower case before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Tremont's action in the middle of a congressional investigation was a naked gesture of defiance toward NIH's congressional overlords from both political parties. It signaled HHS's resolution to protect Dr. Fauci at any cost and to muzzle criticism by his principal detractor. Teflon Tony had come a long way since 1987, when his public blistering by Congress had left him remorseful and terrified for his future. By 2004, he had the protection of his boss, a powerful Republican president who, thanks to Dr. Fauci, was also implicated in the corrupt HIV-NET trials and who cared little for the distempers of a Democrat-controlled Congress. Frustrated and angry at Dr. Fauci's insubordination, Grassley and Baucus fired off a letter dated June 30th to NIH Director Elias A. Zerhouni, demanding an explanation for Dr. Fishbein's firing and accusing NIAID of retaliating against Dr. Fishbein to silence his corruption charges against NIAID. The letter noted that retaliation against an employee for reporting misconduct is unacceptable, illegal, and violates the Whistleblower Protection Act. Meanwhile, a secret internal NIH review of the Nevirapin trials was confirming Dr. Fishbein's worst accusations about Dr. Fauci and HIV-NET. On August 9, 2004, Dr. Ruth Kirchstein, senior advisor to Zerhouni, sent the NIH director the results of her investigation. Kirchstein warned, 
that Dr. Fauci's efforts to fire Fishbein at the very least gave the appearance of reprisal. Kirchstein added that it is clear that Dr. Fauci's AIDS branch is a troubled organization and that Dr. Fishbein's complaint is clearly a sketch of a deeper issue. Zerhouni kept quiet about these damning results from the agency's internal investigations. Defying the Senate, he fired Dr. Fishbein on July 4, 2005. Following his dismissal, Dr. Fishbein brought his case before the Merit Systems Protection Board, asserting protection from any official retaliation under federal whistleblower laws. The MSPB reinstated Dr. Fishbein after determining his firing was wrongful retribution. It was clear, however, that Dr. Fishbein had no future at NIH. He negotiated a termination deal. The terms of Dr. Fishbein's settlement agreement with NIAID are secret, and the deal forbids him from discussing its particulars. Dr. Fishbein told me that despite his nominal victory, Dr. Fauci continued to punish him from afar with reverberations reaching far beyond NIAID. I couldn't get a job in public health for five years, Dr. Fishbein says, of Dr. Fauci's vendetta. Everyone in science is terrified of crossing him. He's like a mafia kingpin. He controls everything and everyone in public health. Dr. Fishbein added, He spreads so much money around and everyone knows he is vindictive. I had one friend tell me, I can't risk hiring you because I can't afford to anger Fauci. Says Dr. Fishbein, this was my first exposure to the cancel culture. He further reminisced, I left the private sector and took the NIH job because I wanted to do public service, but I was very naive. I believed the government could find solutions and that justice always prevailed. My experience at the Division of AIDS really opened my eyes about how the system really operated. The federal budget is a big trough to feed special interest groups, but if you become wise to it, open your mouth and get on the wrong side of someone really powerful, they are out for blood. The government lawyer is up, and they have unlimited resources to burn you. Truth may not be on their side, but they can throw every obstacle in your way to getting a fair hearing of your grievance. And you can't get justice, because litigation will drain you to your last penny. The system isn't designed to help the aggrieved party. I couldn't coerce Fauci for a deposition. He was too busy doing interviews and accepting awards. There were never any consequences for the perpetrators. They continued merrily in their careers. I had to start all over again. If they are determined to ruin your life, they can do it. Farber is also disenchanted. They unleash such violence over your whole existence if you cross them. You never walk the same again. They make you feel like you are a dead person, totally devalued. They put a lot of money into these attack campaigns over my article. They went nuclear. Their crusade to discredit and destroy me had lasting impacts on my life. But you know what? I didn't get murdered. Joyce Hafford did. I think of her all the time. And the real losers in that battle, added Farber, were the millions of African women and babies forced to take Nevirapin, a drug that does not prevent AIDS, but sickens and kills people who take it. In the end, 
Dr. Fauci succeeded in rigging corrupt clinical trials, concealing catastrophic cheating, and deftly manipulating the politics to bring his dangerous and inefficacious drug, Nevirapin, to market. In March 2005, Dr. Valander Turner, a surgeon at the Department of Health in Perth, Australia, pointed out in a letter to Nature, none of the available evidence for nevirapin comes from a trial in which it was tested against a placebo. Yet, as the study's senior author has said, a placebo is the only way a scientist can assess a drug's effectiveness with scientific certainty. Dr. Turner observed that the transmission rate that HIV-NET-012 reported for HIV, 13.1%, was above the background transmission rate. The HIV-NET-012 outcome is higher than the 12% transmission rate reported in a prospective study of 561 African women given no antiretroviral treatment. This, in effect, is the placebo group. If anything, then, Dr. Fauci's pet drug has aggravated rather than prevented transmission in all those African babies he was pretending to save. Farber argues that, under Dr. Fauci's leadership, the failure of researchers to properly control with a placebo group is perhaps the outstanding characteristic of AIDS research in general. The statistical gimmick of getting rid of the inert placebo control group would become a tool wielded by Dr. Fauci to gain approvals for hundreds of new drugs and vaccines, from AIDS to COVID. According to Farber, as it was, there was no placebo group, so HIV-NET's results are a statistical trick, a shadow play, in which success is measured against another drug and not against an inert placebo, the gold standard of clinical trials. The single beneficial outcome of Dr. Fishbein's ordeal was that congressional and press questions about Dr. Fauci's personal financial stakes in the IL-2 drug forced Dr. Fauci to pledge to donate his royalties from the scheme to charity. HHS thereafter changed its royalty policies a little limiting royalty payments to contract employees to $150,000 per year per employee per patent. In the 30 years since, no member of the media has ever asked Dr. Fauci how much money he made on IL-2 or to which charity, if any, he directed his donations. Nor has Dr. Fauci ever disclosed the extent of his personal stakes or the financial returns from his patents on other NIAID drugs, or the royalty amounts he has rewarded to loyal cronies and underlings at NIAID for the thousands of other new drugs the agency has developed. Finally, during all of Dr. Fauci's tenure at NIH, Dr. Zeke Emanuel was director of the Department of Bioethics, DOB the Ethical Oversight Board for all of NIH. Emmanuel's deputy was Tony Fauci's wife, Christine Grady. In 2012, Grady took over as director of DOB. That department oversees bioethics at clinical trials for all NIH sub-agencies, 
including responsibilities for overseeing ethical issues in clinical trials commissioned by her husband, like those for Nevirapin and Proleucan. Grady acknowledged in an interview with Vogue that she was aware of Tony Fauci's reputation as a very scary person upon their first meeting in 1983. Everyone was afraid of him, and when I first saw him I thought, what are they talking about? He's young, he's handsome, and doesn't seem that scary. Dealing with Tony Fauci is like dealing with organized crime, says Dr. Fishbein. He's like the godfather. He has connections everywhere. He's always got people that he's giving money to in powerful positions to make sure he gets his way, that he gets what he wants. These connections give him the ultimate power to fix everything, control every narrative, escape all consequence, and sweep all the dirt and all the bodies under the carpet and to terrorize and destroy anyone who crosses him. Please go to the Children's Health Defense website for the acknowledgments, end notes by chapter, updates to data, and new information that becomes available on any of the subject matter covered in this audiobook.